When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Amen. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Help us to receive your words in the Bible and to believe them uh, in spite of the many reasons that we often think we have to disbelieve them. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if you've seen the satirical uh, Christian news site, The Babylon Bee. Uh, It gets a posting on Facebook uh, pretty often, I think, but... um, uh, There was an article the other day with the headline, Local Woman Looking to Return the Gift of Singleness, which I think uh, summarises the situation pretty well. Uh, More comprehensively, in a recent article, Sam Albury wrote, uh, wrote, uh, a friend of mine who lives too far away contacted me to say he was struggling to understand how the cost of singleness as a Christian could possibly be worth it. As far as he could see, an illicit relationship would be the only possible way for me to enjoy the relational intimacy I've dreamt of my entire life. He concluded, I cannot imagine the shell of a life I would live without somebody standing by my side. Uh, Sam Albury continues, in the light of this deficit of intimacy, could singleness ever be worth it? My friend isn't alone. In my own church family, one of the biggest causes of people drifting away from Christ has been entering into illicit relationships, especially single Christian women with unbelieving men. For many of them, the assumption was that life as a single just wasn't viable. They needed intimacy. 
It has become an unquestioned assumption today. Singleness, at least godly singleness, and intimacy are alternatives. A choice to be celibate is a choice to be alone. No, one, uh, no wonder for many this seems too much to bear. Can we really expect someone to live without romantic hope? It sounds so unfair. There are, of course, loads of reasons that people are single. Some people are single because they've never found somebody to marry. Uh, They'd love to marry, but that's easier said than done. Some people are single because they have been married, but that marriage has broken apart for one reason or another. Whether it was their fault or their spouse's fault, for whatever reason, now they're not married anymore. Now they're single. Some people are single because their spouse has died. Some people are single because they've never really looked to marry. They've never really sought it out. It's just not on their radar. Some people are unmarried, as we'll see, to have a greater opportunity to serve God. I've spoken before uh, in a sermon I did a number of years ago on my own reasons uh, for remaining unmarried. For me, Uh, I originally decided when I was in high school that I wanted to join the Navy and I realised that the Navy and family life didn't go together. And so I thought, well, as long as I'm on a ship, I'm going to wait to marry. And then when that dream faded and I ended up committing to a life of ministry, it seemed like a sensible option to continue that commitment for the sake uh, of serving Christ uh, in gospel ministry. There are lots of reasons, though, that people remain unmarried. But the issue, I think, has gained particular currency at the moment because of the same-sex marriage debate. That's because to call people who are attracted to uh, other people of the same sex, to call them not to marry, is implicitly a call to be single. And the call to singleness is seen as brutal and unkind. The English pastor Ed Shaw, who himself uh, struggles with same-sex attraction, writes in his book, The Plausibility Problem, that one of the problems the church has in speaking out against homosexuality is that it's seen as implausible for people to be relegated uh, to a life of singleness and to a life without sex. And so he argues that in order to be able to speak into our culture about the issue of homosexuality, what the church needs to do is create a culture within which singleness is plausible. But that need for plausible singleness is much, much broader than the issue of same-sex attraction. All that same-sex attraction has done is bring that issue uh, into sharper focus, I think. Nevertheless, the implausibility of singleness is not a new idea. Uh, Singleness is implausible in our society, but it was also implausible in Jesus' day. And yet what is remarkable, I think, is the honour and the dignity that Jesus gives to the situation of single people. And what's true of Jesus himself is true of other New Testament writers like the Apostle Paul. So what I want to do this morning is to give a bit of an overview of the Bible's view of singleness 
and then to spend a little bit of time at the end thinking about the practicalities of that and how, as churches, we can, we can make singleness plausible and how, as single people, we can live uh, in the church and in the world. Well, the passage that uh, Steve read for us before from Matthew 19 is the key place where Jesus addresses the issue of singleness. And he does it, as you would have seen in the context uh, of a debate about divorce. And yet what Jesus says in that setting about singleness is absolutely breathtaking. We'll come in a few weeks to the issue of divorce and remarriage, so I'm not going to say anything about that today. But the Pharisees come to Jesus with this question about divorce and Jesus answers it by pointing them to the purpose of God in creating men and women. He says that God created two genders for the purposes of marriage in which a man would leave, a man and woman would leave their families and be united together in one new family. Jesus says that that institution of marriage was to be lifelong, it was to be uh, forever. The idea of marriage was not that you would marry one person and then as soon as they, uh, as soon as they stopped interesting you, you would uh, go and find somebody else. No, he says that God's purpose was that marriages should stay together. That idea was as countercultural in Jesus' day as it is in our day. And when the disciples hear it, they rather provocatively say to Jesus in verse 10, well, if that's the situation between a husband and a wife, then it's better not to marry. The disciples aren't genuinely suggesting that it's better to stay single. What they're doing is expressing their utter incredulity at Jesus' view of marriage. In a Jewish culture, to be unmarried was utterly unthinkable, unthinkable as unthinkable then as it is today. And so when the, Jesus, when the, when the disciples say to Jesus, uh, if marriage is so strict, it's better not to marry, the unspoken assumption is, but everyone knows that can't be true. How ridiculous. The disciples implicitly assume that an unmarried life is an unthinkable abomination. They expect Jesus, in fact, to agree with them and to say something like, well, yes, of course, that's not true. We'll have to lower our standard uh, for how we think about marriage. But Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus says the complete opposite. He says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, that is the word about singleness, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. If Jesus' views on divorce and remarriage were radical, what he says about singleness blows people out of the water. Jesus takes the image of a eunuch, someone who's been castrated uh, uh, for kind of the purpose of noble service, he takes uh, that image of a eunuch as an image of somebody serving God in the kingdom of heaven. Eunuchs were often people who had been castrated uh, in order to serve in the court of a king. It was in order to protect the lineage of the king, to protect the harem of the king uh, from uh, interference by the king's servants. And Jesus takes that image and uses that image as a symbol, as a picture of noble service. 
But even though these people had important positions in the, in the courts of kings in the day, they were still objects of scorn or pity. To be unmarried in Jesus' day was one thing, to be childless was just as bad, but to be surgically emasculated was just hideous. But Jesus chooses to use that image, he chooses that image as a picture of people serving and living for the kingdom of God. He uses that image not to describe people of pity or dishonour, but people of great purpose and great dignity. He chooses that image to describe people who renounce marriage, not people who become actual eunuchs, but people who renounce marriage in order to serve the kingdom of God. Paul, in his discussion of marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, explains the mechanics of that. He explains why singleness can be advantageous. He says there, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, uh, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Paul says that singleness affords undivided attention in a way that marriage and family doesn't. Being single doesn't necessarily mean that you have more time. I remember a married pastor saying, saying that to me. He said, Carl, I realised when I saw my daughter living on her own, uh, where she was working, he said, I realised that single people don't necessarily have more time. In some ways, you can have just as little time as people who are married because you can't ever share any responsibility with anyone. Everything that you have to do, you have to do for yourself. There's most often no one else to help you. You do the cooking and the cleaning, you do the washing, you do the shopping, you do the lawns, you do the finances. You have to earn all the money to pay the mortgage. No one else can help you with that. And if you're single with children, that just becomes infinitely harder. And yet I know quite a few single people who end up taking on huge amounts of ministry in their churches because people think, well, they're, they're not married, they have loads of time. But actually their lives can be just as demanding as people who are married. Now it's not that single people generally have more time. I think what they often have more of is brain space. That's what Paul, that's what Paul says, isn't it? He says single people have more focus you have more time to think, less people to, to be concerned about, less people to, to, to focus, uh, to plan for. You can drive along in the car uh, and instead of trying to keep the kids in the back seat from you know, ripping each other to shreds, you can pray for the world or think about people in the church. Reflect on the state of the world. 
think about how does the gospel apply to X, Y, or Z? There's an amount of time that you have for reflecting on those things that people who are married don't necessarily have. Singleness also allows you, I think, to set priorities in life uh, in a way that you can't do as a married person or as a family. I remember once giving uh, advice to a young guy about a ministry opportunity. He had a ministry opportunity that he could take up. And at some point in the conversation, he said something like, well, I'm going to have to talk to my wife about it, which kind of totally blew me away. Not because I had ne- it had never occurred to me that he had to talk to his wife about it, but in that moment, I was totally blown away by the, by the realisation that I'd never had to ask that question. That the only two questions I've ever had to ask in my life are, is it worth doing and can I do it? I've never, ever had to think about how would this sacrifice my family or my children or, or, or anything like that. That's, there's a tremendous liberty in that. There's a man who's about to be installed as a bishop in Melbourne who spent the last years of his life crisscrossing through Asia teaching the Bible and theology to pastors. Uh, and he just would fly all over the place all the time. And I said, the, the friend who was telling me about it, I said to my friend, I'm guessing he's not married. He said, no, no, he's not married. He would never have been able to do that. He would never have been able to do the role that he has been doing uh, if he had been a married person. Because he never would have been home. He never would have been with his family. Of course, the danger is that single-minded service for the sake of the gospel can very easily become self-service. It's worth noting, I think, that singleness outside the church doesn't need a popularity boost. The rates of marriage are lower probably than they've ever been in our society. Lots of people are single. There's not any need for the church to kind of replicate that vision of singleness. It's not that singleness itself, do you see, is intrinsically valuable, but it's singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven which is valuable. By saying that singleness can be valuable, Jesus lends dignity to a position that many people in his day and in our day viewed as scandalous. And by saying that singleness can be valuable at all, Jesus gives a pathway to purpose for those people who find themselves single for other reasons. So although Jesus says that some people are single because they choose to be, He also says that there are other reasons that people are unmarried. He points out that some people are unmarried because of circumstances beyond their control. There are those who are born eunuchs and those who are made eunuchs by other people. That is, there are circumstances which have been uh, kind of imposed on them that have made them single. So too in our day, there are people who remain unmarried due to circumstances beyond their control. As I said before, there are people who want to marry but can't. There are those who were married but are no longer married because of divorce or because of bereavement. There are some people who are too sick to marry. That is, they simply don't have the physical health for it or they maybe don't have the mental health for it. 
There are some people who aren't physically attracted to people of the opposite sex and so remain unmarried. But by saying that singleness can have great purpose and dignity, Jesus wrenches it out of a situation of dishonour and helps us to see how it can be a wonderful opportunity. Jesus shows us how, whether we've chosen it or whether it's been imposed on us, he shows us how singleness can be used for God. If you're an unmarried person, it's a great question to ask, it's a helpful diagnostic question, how am I using my singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Now, there's lots of ways that that can work out, but it's a good question to ask, isn't it? How am I using the singleness that God has given me for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Whether you want to marry or not, that's a good question to ask. You might be using it to help out some married friends by babysitting their children. Uh, You might be meeting up with another single person one-on-one during the week to read the Bible with them. You might be using your time alone in the car to pray for others in the church or to pray for the missionaries that we support or to pray for our community. You might be committing to mission work which is beyond the bounds of possibility for your married friends. If you're using your singleness for yourself, you'll inevitably find singleness deeply, deeply dissatisfying. And I think, actually, deeply, deeply lonely as well. But if you're using your singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, you'll find it much, much easier to be satisfied uh, and, uh, in that position. So both Jesus and Paul give dignity and honour to the position of singleness. But why is it that they can do that? Why is it that they had such a radically different view from the people of their day? The answer uh, comes uh, from Jesus, at least, a few chapters later in Matthew 22. It's only a brief statement that he makes, but there, during a debate about the resurrection, Jesus says to the Sadducees, you're in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, Jesus says, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The Sadducees are are, are trying to trap Jesus in an argument about the resurrection, but Jesus says that they're wrong because they don't understand that in the new creation there will be no marriage. At the resurrection, there'll be uh, no one given in marriage uh, or no one married. The reason for that is, uh, as the rest of the Bible shows, marriage foreshadows something greater than itself. Marriage foreshadows our relationship with Christ. We saw that last week as Steve uh, took us through Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Listen again to some of those words that we looked at last week. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, says Paul. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Similarly, in Revelation, the church is depicted as the bride of Christ, beautifully dressed, as on a wedding day. We were made in some sense, for marriage. But we're headed to an eternity without marriage. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say, 
we're headed to, to, for an eternity where the ultimate marriage is between Christ and the church. And the problem is that we live in between those two poles, in between those two places. We live between the garden and the resurrection, the garden where we were created by God for marriage and the resurrection where there will be no marriage, but where all that marriage foreshadowed will be fulfilled in our relationship with Jesus. That, I think, has two important consequences. Because we were made for marriage, that means that to miss out on marriage is a genuine loss. Because we were made for marriage, to miss out on marriage constitutes a genuine loss. You genuinely miss out on a deep and precious lifelong relationship with someone in which you grow to understand each other more and more and in which you grow to love each other more and more. There's a reason that marriage and not singleness portrays the gospel. It's because marriage is the ultimate human relationship. You also miss out on the precious parent-child relationship. Clearly not every marriage results in children. uh, And when a marriage doesn't result in children, it's often incredibly painful. That's because there's something wonderful about the relationship between a, a child and a parent. Of course there is. We know that because that's the relationship in the, of the Trinity between the Father and the Son. It's built into the very structure of God. And some of us, by God's grace, have been called to mirror that in a small way in our own families. And for those who are not married, that's not a possibility. To miss out on being a spouse or a parent is a genuine loss. That's important to say. Because, it, because if you're sad that you're missing out on those things, that's okay. To miss out on them is a genuine loss. But because we're heading to an eternity without marriage... Even, those things are, even though those things are a genuine loss, it means that they're not an ultimate loss. If we're headed to an eternity without marriage, and if marriage is a picture of the ultimate hope of our relationship with Christ, then that means that to be unmarried, to remain unmarried, is a living witness to our hope, to our certainty of something better. It's a testimony that our ultimate relationship is not found in marriage, but in Christ. It's a testimony to the fact that it's possible to be content without the special someone. That all the movies and all the films and all the songs that we listen to tell us that we most deeply need. To live unmarried is a testimony to the fact that that satisfaction comes in Christ. Living contentedly single is also a witness to the idea of living for eternity. It's a witness to going without now in the hope of a better eternity. It's a witness to the truth that this life is not ultimate, that this life is important, but it's not all there is. It's a witness to the fact that one day this life will be swallowed up 
by our eternity with God. One of the things that I hold very dear is the realisation that sometimes comes to me uh, when I'm sitting at my desk uh, or at home or driving along in the car, the realisation that I have that I have no other reason to live for except for Christ. I have no family to go on living for. Do you see what I mean? There's no other purpose for my life except to live for Christ. And in those moments, I think that's a precious gift. It's a wonderful gift from God to be able to say that my reason for living today is for Christ and to have that clarity of purpose and to be able to witness to that, to say, (laughs) this life is not all there is. Singleness is a witness to the fact that God calls us not only to give up sin, but sometimes God calls us to give up even good gifts for the sake of serving him in the kingdom of heaven. Marriage is a good gift and giving it up is a genuine sacrifice. But in some settings, in the right setting, it's a good sacrifice for good reasons. The long and the short of all that is, I think, that singleness, like marriage, is a position of dignity and honour. To be single is not to be left on the shelf, but it's to have a great purpose and a great gift from God. It's to have the purpose of pointing to Jesus and our ultimate relationship with him. But before we finish, I'm conscious uh, that... It's very easy to talk about the theory of singleness or the value of singleness without ever actually addressing the kind of the practicalities of it. Uh, And I've been guilty of that myself in the past. And so I want to sort of finish uh, today by just saying a few things about the reality of living as a single person uh, that might be helpful for those of us who are unmarried Uh, And also, that might be helpful for those of us who are married, who are thinking about, how can I serve those people who are single better? Uh, So a few things to say. The first thing I think to say is that actually believing what we've already talked about is probably probably the most helpful thing for living as a single person. So the key uh, to contentment in singleness is speaking God's truth about singleness into the reality of our lives. So when you think to yourself, my life has no meaning because I'm not married, you need to say, no, that's a lie. My life has has great purpose and great meaning uh, because through my singleness I can more clearly point to Christ. My life has great dignity and purpose because I have the opportunity to serve God in a way that other people can't. When you think to yourself, I'm on the shelf, nobody loves me, you need to say, no, that's a lie. God loves me. God has given me this situation as a precious gift. Now, it might seem like the lady in that article, uh, like one of those Christmas presents that you'd rather return. But I think the most generous-hearted thing to do is to think to yourself, well, God knows me better than I do. Perhaps God has given me this gift for a reason. And perhaps I should receive this gift as he's given it to me as a great gift of his kindness and love. Uh, Second, we need to realise that the one person who satisfies our deepest desires for relationship 
and intimacy is Jesus. That's true, actually, whether we're married or unmarried. Uh, The deepest satisfaction in life comes not when we find someone to marry or find someone that we love. The deepest satisfaction in life comes when we love Jesus with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. There's one prayer that we know, well, there's lots of prayers actually, but there's at least one prayer that we know that God will always answer. That is, please help me to love Christ with all my heart. And please help me to know his love more and more every day. Don't shape your purpose around finding a husband or a wife. Shape your purpose around serving and loving Jesus. Third, we also need to have a healthy understanding of the church. The trouble with uh, loving and re- loving Jesus and receiving the love of Jesus, I think, is that it's quite intangible. Uh, how do you love someone that you can't see? How do you love someone that you can't hug or who can't hug you? How do you receive that love from Jesus if you can't uh, touch and see him? It's true that the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit warms our heart, reassures us of God's presence, that the Spirit fuels our love and makes our love for Christ effective and substantial. But the concrete way in which Jesus works that out through his Spirit is through the church. The church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. Jesus works through his body to give us his love And we can love Jesus in return by loving his body. It's the way that Christ hugs us and invites us over for dinner. It's the way that he encourages us and it's the way that he walks beside us as we go along the road. So with that kind of in mind, here are nine tips for making the most of the church. Number one, love Christ by loving his church and receive the love of Christ by receiving the love of the church. So instead of looking for one or two really deep relationships as a kind of quasi-replacement for marriage, try and make the most of all the people in the church. Uh, You need to be willing to share yourself with people that you have little in common with except the gospel. And you need to be willing to care about people that you have little in common with except the gospel. Number two, keep going to church and growth group even when you feel lonely there. Try and force yourself to stay after church and if you can't do that, find a little job to keep you from feeling awkward. Join the morning tea cleaning up roster and it will give you a reason to stay behind. Say yes to invitations more than no. Uh, If a family you don't really know invites you over for dinner, say yes, rather than retreating into your own space because it might be awkward. Sometimes single people, I think, are our own worst enemies in that regard. Number four, invite others over. If that's too much, try teaming up with one or two other people who can help you. So ask another couple from the church and say, I'm trying to entertain people, would you be able to help me do that? Could you help me do that once every couple of months? Don't ever, number five, don't ever say, I have nothing in common with anyone. You always have the gospel and you're always united by the Spirit. And that means more than you realise.
Don't ever say, number six, don't ever say, I don't have any friends in the church. Everyone in the church is a brother or sister in Christ. Pray that God would help you to love them and to receive their love. Number seven, don't say, no one ever asks me how I'm going. Instead, tell people how you're going. It doesn't have to be an essay. In fact, please don't make it an essay. But just say, this has been a tough week. I'd love it if you could pray for me. Number eight, don't expect people to give more than they're able to give. That's actually really unkind. (laughs) That is, if someone has a spouse and kids, you can't expect them to be at your beck and call every day of the week. You may not even be able to expect them to be at your beck and call every, every week, one day of the week. Instead, gratefully receive what limited time they do have to spend with you. Number nine, don't begrudge people for how they fail to love you. Work harder to love them better yourself. If they don't invite you over, don't worry. You can invite them over. If they don't ask you how you're going, don't worry about that either. You can ask them how they're going. Contentment in singleness is like contentment in marriage. It's hard won. It takes a tremendous amount of work to get there. But as a church too, I think, there are simple things that we can do to help people who are single and actually to help people who are married as well. And I have seven much shorter uh, tips for that. Number one, invite them over. Invite them over. Uh, For dinner, after church, for lunch, invite them to watch a movie, to play a board game. When I lived in Canberra, there were three bachelors who shared a house together and they invited me around for dinner every Wednesday night. It was a bit ridiculous. They were ridiculous people. No, they weren't. We were all ridiculous. But it was really lovely. Uh, When I lived in Olverston, there was an elderly widow who invited me around for dinner once a week on Thursday night. Uh, Wonderful gift. In some ways, difficult, not the kind of interpersonal contact that maybe you would ask for. But again, if you say no to that, you cut yourself off from the love of Christ through his body, the church. Number two, invite them to meet up at a cafe or to go to the movies uh, or go for a walk. The movies are great. If you don't like to talk to people, you can just sit there and watch the screen for two hours. Uh, That's a good tip. Uh, Number three... These are my tips, by the way, not, not necessarily biblical tips. Uh, number three, invite them to your growth group. Number four, invite them to join a community group that you're involved in. When I first came to this church, uh, Fiona Stewart said to me, Carl, you've got to come and join the community music program. Uh, and that invitation saved my sanity. Invite them to something that you're involved in. It doesn't have to be church. Number five, sit next to them in church. Number six, give them a call during the week. Number seven, include them in things that you do with your children. My growth group meets at Phil and Chrissy's house. And when we get there often, the kids are still up. 
And for someone who doesn't spend a lot of time with kids, it's nice just to turn up and for the kids to be there and to be able to say, hey guys, how are you going? There are actually quite a lot of single people in this church and it would be good to take the time, I think, for all of us, whether we're single or married, to think about the ways that we can serve and encourage them. Uh, And to those in this church who are already thinking about that and who are already doing that, let me thank you on behalf of those of us who are not married for the way that you uh, love us and care for us. I'm not suggesting that if uh, we do all these things, that if you follow all my tips, that singleness will be easy. But it will be more manageable, and importantly, it will be more plausible. And more people will live single lives for the sake of the kingdom of God, whether they choose that initially or not. More people will live single lives which point the rest of us to Jesus. And more people will live single lives that point to the eternity that waits for us with him in heaven. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible wisdom and the kindness and mercy of Jesus Christ. who didn't treat singleness with contempt but showed the great purpose and dignity that it can have through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we're conscious of the fact that because of the people that we were made to be living an unmarried life can be a painful existence. And Lord, undoubtedly there are many here this morning who feel that pain, who feel that emptiness, who feel that loneliness, who feel discarded or unloved. Lord, we pray that you would draw near to them through us, your church, the body of Jesus that we might be an encouragement to them, that you might love them through us and that you might love us through them. But Lord, we also pray that you would give them and us as a church that great vision of the purpose of singleness and the opportunity that provides to serve Jesus. Lord, for those of us who are single, help us to take up that opportunity, whether we've chosen it or not. Help us to serve Jesus with all our heart. Help us to receive as a wonderful gift the reality that we have no other reason for living except to serve Jesus Christ. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.